0: All right, let's go First Kings chapter 16. First Kings chapter 16. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. One of the perks of a physical one, there's all kinds of perks, but one of the perks is that it will never, ever, ever start reading to you out loud in the middle of a service. <laughs> ever. <coughs> and no, Margie ain't the only one. I'm just saying. It's a safeguard. Just saying. Now, uh, listen, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we would invite you to take that one home. And the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word to teach us about himself, to, to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. And listen, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you're at a disadvantage because that's how you know God. That's how you come to know him. So we want you to have one. So if you don't have one, take that one and we'll call it a win. Right? And so, First Kings chapter 16. Uh, we're getting pretty deep now. <laughs> I mean, we've been in it for a long time. We've been in it since Easter, uh, on and off, uh, through a series that we're calling The Story of God. And the premise of that series is incredibly simple. We believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus, like the whole thing. Not just not just pieces, not just a generalized theme. No, we mean like Everything in the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. Even stories that we would say about other folks like Joshua or Abraham or Leah, that their stories are ultimately about Jesus too. That if you read them correctly, you walk away going, man, that Jesus is something awesome. If you read them correctly, you walk away in in a deeper love for, deeper understanding of who our God is and what he has done. If you're wondering how that works, well stick around because that's exactly what I'm intending to show you today. We've been walking through the major lives of the uh, through the lives of the major Old Testament characters and asking the question, how does their story tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? How does their story point us to Jesus? But that question can feel a little daunting, and so we've taken up the practice of breaking it into four smaller questions, right? And those of you who have been here for a while ought to be able to tell me what those are, but I'm totally not going to ask you out loud because, you know, um, how is this person raised up? How, what made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And then how does their story preach the gospel? It's my opinion that if we answer those four questions successfully, faithfully, we position ourselves in such a way that our big daunting story of God question is actually pretty simple to answer y'all ready to jump into it today who's our character elijah. elijah it's good it's a good day to figure out who grew up going to sunday school let's round out his profile the mighty prophet of god high risk high reward a placeholder hmm, interesting you ready to get into it how was elijah raised up well for starters with incredibly dark circumstances Incredibly dark circumstances. 1 Kings chapter 16. Let me set the stage for you. Um, We closed things out last week by talking about Solomon and his son coming after him, Rehoboam. If you remember last week, we said that Rehoboam messes things up right out of the gate. That Solomon's sin causes God to say, I'm going to take the kingdom away from your son. I'm not going to take it away from you, I'm going to take it away from your son. And then Rehoboam, literally within the first week or so, does something that causes the ten northern tribes of the kingdom to split away and form their own nation. All right? And so from this point on in the story, you've got two kingdoms in the, the Old Testament. You've got the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, which are the kingdom of Israel, and you got the two southern tribes, which are uh, the kingdom of Judah. And they each have their own kings, and they each have their own capitals, and they each have their own armies, and sometimes they get along, and sometimes they very much do not. Right? You've got these two kingdoms that are claiming to be God's people, and they're at conflict with each other. You fast forward in the story 60-ish years, and both countries have gone through a couple of kings by now, and the northern kingdom is, well, it's got some issues, all right? Judah is kind of doing okay. The southern king is kind of doing okay. They've had a good king. They've had a decent king. They had a bad king, and it kind of goes through this cycle. A good king, bad king, good king, bad king. Israel, the northern kingdom, never has a good king. Their entire history is one bad, tragic, sinful, wicked is a good word to use, king, after the next. And it's snowballing fast. And in verse 29 of chapter 16, it says this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So call time out there. All right, so it sets the timeline over against the king of Judah. Who's the king of Judah at the time? Asa, all right, this is going to be fun. All right. Asa, Asa is the king of Judah right now. It's his 38th year of his reign, all right? And so the timeline is being set that while Asa is king in Judah, in the 38th year of his kingship in Judah, Omri, the king of Israel, dies and his son Ahab ascends to the throne, all right? And it just so happens, if you didn't know, Samaria is their capital, over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Everybody on the same page now? There's a test later, all right? Verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it hadn't been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Okay, so time out again. I'm pretty sure, and there's debate over this, but I'm pretty sure Baal is actually supposed to be pronounced Baal. Here's the deal, though. That's not easy to say. And I'm not going to say it over and over and over again as we read through this text. So I'm just going to go with Baal. Does that sound right? I don't think he's going to, ma- I don't think he's going to care because, you know, he's like not real, right? So we're going to call him Baal for our purposes today. I'm not going to do that weird little half-swallow thing. Um, but then in verse 32, it says this. He, Ahab, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, that's an that's a altar to a false god named Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's a bold claim. 34, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. That's something that wasn't supposed to happen if you know your Bible well. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigab, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So here we see the rise of King Ahab, who the author of 1 Kings describes as someone who did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Things are going really well in Israel right now, right? But if that's not bad enough, the Bible also tells us that he marries a nice little sweet Sidonian girl named Jezebel. And even if you didn't grow up going to church, you are familiar with the name Jezebel, aren't you? Ain't nobody naming their daughter Jezebel anymore. Why? Like, like, aren't there names in our culture that we just don't use anymore because somebo- somewhere along the line, somebody ruined it for everybody else? Like, no one's naming their son Judas. Very few people are naming their son Adolf, right? There are names that we don't use anymore because of the connotations they carry. Ain't nobody naming their daughter Jezebel. So what's so special about her? What has she done to earn this little honor, if you want to call it that? Not only did Jezebel begin systematically murdering all of God's prophets that she can find. In fact, it got bad enough that at one point in the story, we're not going to look at that part, but at one point in the story, uh, we're told that hundreds of prophets are hidden in caves so that Jezebel can't find them. Not only did she go through and systematically murder, execute all the prophets of God she can find. But in, I'll um, give you one story in particular. Uh, in 1 Kings 21, Ahab wants a, a, a vineyard that's like located right beside the, the palace. And he goes to the guy who owns the vineyard and says, hey, sell me your vineyard. And the guy just doesn't want anything to do with it. He's like, I ain't selling you my vineyard. And Ahab, literally the Bible tells us, goes to his room and pouts. Jezebel sees this and goes, mm you're the king. She immediately forges a letter in his name, has this guy invited to a party of sorts, falsely accuses him of treason, has him immediately stoned to death, goes back to Ahab and says, hey, he should have sold you that field, huh? Go get what's yours. Jezebel's a sweet little lady. (laughs) See why she earned this reputation? This lady was heartless. There's a reason nobody names their kids Jezebel. She didn't just earn that reputation, she seemed to revel in it. But that's not the only reason that the days were dark. It's not just that the the people who worshipped God were in danger. It's also that false worship was everywhere. Everywhere. Idolatry was rampant in the days of Ahab, specifically for the false god Baal that got its start in Sidon, where Jezebel was from. Baal worship was everywhere. Altars are set up everywhere. It's kind of the official religion of the nation of Israel at this moment. So you've got the prophets of God hiding in caves, and you've got all these false altars set up, and later on in the story we'll learn that about 850-ish prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth are actually dining at the queen's table. It's a dark, dark day for God's people in Israel. And so God raises up a voice to speak for him. A prophet named Elijah. And the second way that Elijah is raised up is with audacious zeal. Flip over to verse, or chapter 17. Chapter 17 of First Kings says this in verse 1. This is the introduction of Elijah. That's all we get about who he is. Now Elijah the Tishbite, a Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself from, uh, by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook which I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Verse 5, And so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Verse 11 and she was going uh, and as she was going to bring it he called to her and said, "Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand." And he said, "As the Lord or, and she said, "Excuse me, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die." And Elijah said to her, "Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first Make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and for your son. Verse 14, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did, as Elijah said, and she and and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah." Okay, so let's stop there for a second. We can keep reading, and we will keep reading in a second, but let's call time out. Elijah tells the king of Israel to his face that it won't rain a drop until Elijah says so. It's a bold move, Cotton. Let's see if it plays out, right? And that's exactly what happens. No more rain. Elijah goes up to Ahab and says, hey, neither do nor rain until I give the say-so. And then there's a drought immediately that's what happened. Which is awesome for a few reasons that we could list out, but one of the coolest is that Baal is supposed to be the God who makes it rain. So what's going on here? This is a direct challenge to the God that Ahab is worshiping, right? This is a direct challenge. Oh, you want to worship the rain God? Okay, let's see if he can make it rain without my permission. You go make your offering, Ahab, see how it plays out. You think this made Elijah a popular person in the king's court? <laughs> you think this made a, Elijah a popular person, person in the eyes of Jezebel? No, and so Elijah goes into hiding. He runs off to the brook, runs off to the wilderness, a wilderness that we're told is actually not very far from where Jezebel grew up, which means that Elijah's kind of hanging out under their nose the whole time, and he's there for months. He gets... He gets food carried to him by the birds. God provides for his knees. And he's there for months. like It may be more than a year that he's here. Just camping out by the brook. It's a unique story. But that drought is as massive as God intended it to be. And so eventually that brook dries up too, right? So what does God have him do? He has him go to Zarephath. Also in Sidon, to the house of a widow and her son, Elijah asks for help, but the woman's got her own sad story, right? What's going on there? They have no food left either. They've got enough for one last meal. That's going to be one of the most tragic stories ever, right? I'm going to make my one last meal, and then we're going to die. So what does Elijah say? No, you won't die. Make some food for me, then go make some food for yourself. God will take care of us. The audacity, right? Anybody else making those claims around here? I'm not. God raises up Elijah with audacious zeal. God provides for them miraculously, all three of them, until the drought is over. That's exactly what happens. Whatever Elijah says will happen is exactly what happens. But let's keep reading. Look at verse 17 of 1 Kings. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he, carried, uh, excuse me, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. What a conversation, right? And the woman said to Elijah, "Now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord is in your, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth." So Elijah brings a kid back to life. Is that a big deal? We're going to act like that's a big deal? I think we probably ought to act like that's a big deal. It's, like a, it's a gigantic deal, right? Even as Elijah hides in obscurity from Ahab and Jezebel, God's still using him in massive, massive ways, right? But I thought the prophets were all supposed to be, you know, walk in with their chest puffed out and and throw down the gauntlet and and get their way. God's working in obscurity here, right? Audaciously in obscurity. But it doesn't live in that obscurity forever, because look at chapter 18. We're going to skip some for the sake of time, but starting in verse 1. It says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. So it's been three years since this drought started. He's been hiding out at the brook and at the widow's house for three years to this point. After many days uh, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. Skip down to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Verse 19, Therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together out Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Seems like a logical question, right? And the people did not answer him a word. They didn't want logical questions, did they? Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, that is well spoken. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, crying, uh, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he, maybe he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with fill the trench also with water. Verse 36, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, uh, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rushing rain. So Ahab went up and, to eat and to drink and Elijah went, down to the top, or went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees and he said to the servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and he looked and there was nothing and he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea and he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, let the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So I know that that's a really long story, and I promise that one day we'll spend some more time kind of walking through that more deeply, exegetically. Um, But what do we need to know for our time this morning? Elijah outright challenges Ahab and all the false prophets of Baal to what I call the showdown on Mount Carmel right? Cue the WWE Royal Rumble music. (laughs) We'll each build our altars and we'll see which God answers the question, right? You build your altar, you slaughter your bull, you do your little dance and worship thing, and we'll see which God brings fire down from heaven. Gather all the people, Elijah lets Baal's team go first, and They spend the Bible next several hours, the Bible tells us, dancing and wailing and cutting themselves, trying to entice a false god to answer them. And over and over again, at least two times in the text, it says no one answered. No one paid attention. Guess why? (laughs) So what does Elijah do? Well, like any young man, he mocks him. I say, young man, I'm guilty of that myself. Is he busy? Like, you want, like, this is the middle school boy's perfect, perfect Bible story. He, he, there's potty humor here. Is he busy in the bathroom, he says. Is he relieving himself? Do you need to go check on him? He mocks him. Elijah waits for them to tire themselves out and then he calmly sets his altar back up, prepares the bull and steps off to the side, kneels and prays and humbly asks God to do something big. And God does something big, right? Not only does fire come down from heaven and burn up the altar, it says that the fire was so hot that it licked up the water. He pours a ridiculous amount of water on top of all this wood. Those jars, think, think small barrels, 12 of them. Soaks everything, fills the trench around it, it licks up the water. Everyone there immediately gets the picture that God wanted to put in front of everybody that morning. That the Lord is in control and Baal is nothing. The Lord is in control and Baal is nothing. Elijah has all the false prophets killed, which is a fun little story, and then he turns around to Ahab and goes, hey, what's that out here? Oh, it's the rain. Go get yourself ready if the rain doesn't slow you down. It's because of things like this that Elijah is widely seen as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Like, Like later on when Jesus comes onto the scene, everybody's like, is it Elijah reborn? Elijah is widely seen as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, and this is the reason why. He had the audacity to look the king of Israel in the eye and say, oh, 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 no rain until I say so. Guess what? It's time to rain. Elijah is the one making the rules here. He walked in unquestionable power and talk down to kings. But just like last time when Elijah stood up to Ahab, the story ends with Elijah running away. There's audacious zeal, but that story is immediately followed by bottoming out and running off scared. Why? Well, we have another question to answer this morning, right? What made Elijah a seemingly bad choice? to be a part of God's great redemption story? What are the red flags that we see in Elijah's heart and life that, that, that warn us of something? And Listen, well, well, when, you, when you have Elijah, you get some really, really high mountaintops, but you also get some really low valleys. Really low valleys. 1 Kings chapter 19. Look at verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. That's a threat, guys. Verse 3, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Okay, so the same guy who performed miracles, right? And talked back to kings. And mocked false gods and their followers. That guy is running away scared. I mean, yeah, the threat from Jezebel was real. Yeah, the threat from Jezebel was real, but at this point in the story, Elijah has one example after the next, after the next, after the next, of God doing one big thing after the next, after the next, after the next, right? You think he's capable of doing it again? You think God's capable of doing exactly what Elijah needs or requests from him? Of protecting him and providing for him and empowering him? There are moments of great zeal and power that Elijah walks in, but there's also some moments where Elijah misses the forest for the trees. Elijah loses sight of who God is and what he's doing, and it causes him to retreat back into an attitude of pity and self-loathing. That's what's going on here. I mean, just think through lo- as Elijah's logic for a second. Right? The guy who ran away because he's scared of being killed, because he's afraid of dying, ask God as soon as he gets there to kill him. You see some problem with that? But it gets even more specific because he's running away from the people he just showed that God was more powerful than. He's literally running away from the people that he just put in their place by showing that God's in charge and they're not. The question's got to be asked. If God even has the power to follow through with Elijah's request to kill him, does not God also have the power to protect him instead? Yeah. If God's powerful enough to do one, he's definitely powerful enough to do both. It's upside down logic at best. But Elijah, he goes insular here, man. He goes completely internal. He doesn't see reality correctly because that's what happens when you go insular. Logic isn't your friend in that moment. Like, you might have picked up on it uh, throughout the story, but a couple of times throughout what we've read, Elijah has said something to the tune of, I'm the only one left, no one follows God but me. Is that a true statement? Is it a true statement? The answer is no. We only mentioned it in passing, but we mentioned it. There are literally hundreds of prophets hiding in caves right now, right? Being protected from Jezebel's wrath. And we skipped over it in our reading, but Elijah has been told this information verbatim. He meets with a guy named Obadiah, and Obadiah tells Elijah, hey, I've got these guys hidden away. Elijah knows this information right now, but he ignores that and chooses to rock the pity party pretty hard. So much so that he spends the next 40 days walking the 300 miles or so south to Mount Horeb. You may be trying to do the math in your head. No, it doesn't take five weeks to walk 300 miles. We don't know why it takes him that long. Probably moping along the way. Have you ever watched a kid mope as they walk? <laughs> Only have hypothetical stories to share with you. It takes forever. Probably why it took a month and a half. But Elijah wants to get as far away from here as he can. And so Elijah heads off to Mount Horeb. Man, Elijah's a guy who desperately needs to be redeemed, right? So we get to ask our third question. How does God redeem Elijah? Well, for those of you who know your Bibles well, what's Mount Horeb's other name in the Old Testament? What's Mount Horeb's other name? Everybody's scared of being wrong. Sinai. Sinai. Mount Horeb is the same as Sinai. What happens at Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments is a really, really good answer, but it's not the best answer because that's not all that happens at Mount Sinai. What else happens at Mount Sinai? Aha. Israel meets their God. The Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20, right? Moses is on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. He's up on top of the mountain. God gives the Ten Commandments. Uh, immediately after that, God also gives a big chunk of the civil law that, that Israel's going to operate in over the next 12 or so chapters. I think that's what it is. All right? And so Moses is on Mount Sinai in the middle of Exodus for a long time. But before either of those two things happen, in Exodus 19, God gathers Israel to the foot of the mountain. This is a a people that he's just rescued out of slavery. This is a people he has done one miraculous thing after the next, after the next, after the next to get them out of Egypt and across a desert into this place where they're now standing at the foot of the mountain. And here he tells them that he is going to be their God and they will be his people. He tells them, I will make myself known to you and you will be my treasured possession. He tells them that he loves them and that he's going to bless them and that they will be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments to show them how to live as his people and reveal their need for a savior. Ten Commandments comes after the declaration of you are mine. This is who I am. Or to steal a line from Henry Blackaby, Israel encounters its God. And that, dear church, is what we call foreshadowing. Because look at verse nine, first Kings nineteen. There he, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. They seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper and when Elijah heard it he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and behold there came a voice to him and said what are you doing here Elijah he said I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed the prophets by the sword and I even I only am left and and they seek my life to take it away you ever repeated the same thing to God as if he didn't know it Verse fifteen, and the Lord said to him, "Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shiphat of, of Abel Maola, sure, and shall anoint to the prophet in your. Pl- you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel." all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, so a couple of things. One, how cool is it that God engages Elijah where he's at? God presses in gently here, but he doesn't ignore the problem, right? He engages. What are you doing here? And man, there there are times in my life where I know exactly how Elijah feels in this moment, right? Can you relate to that? Maybe I'm alone in that, I don't know. There have been seasons in my life where I've gone insular. I've gotten wrapped up in the pity party. I've gotten wrapped up in in not feeling heard or not feeling valued or not feeling uh, like I've got any company. And by God's grace, I've had folks lean in and go, Stephen, what are you doing? Can you relate to that? Gift from God in that moment. What are you doing? God engages Elijah where he's at (laughs) and then Elijah goes on his little rant about being alone again right and the only one left so what does God do he decides to show him a little piece of himself he creates these incredibly audacious signs things that we would normally call acts of God right He gives him a windstorm then gives him an earthquake and then he gives him a great fire and even though God is the author of those things and could just have easily been in those things this time God isn't in those things God follows it up with what the ESV translates as a low whisper. I like the ESV, but I think the translation is a little weak there. The Hebrew is probably more accurately described as a hush. It almost carries the idea of a command to be silent. Hush, Elijah. Hush. Hush. God was in the whisper God called Elijah to challenge the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel that that call was audacious and God did a big thing in the audacious moment sometimes though God is only in the whisper sometimes he's working powerfully in the things that we're overlooking or maybe even just outright oblivious to he's working powerfully all the same So God pretty much tells Elijah here to pick himself up and get back to work, right? Specifically, he reminds him that there's 7,000 people in Israel who haven't bent the knee yet. So Elijah ain't alone, right? God also tells Elijah to march back where he came from and anoint a few people to do some big things. He's to anoint future kings for Syria and for Israel. and He's also to anoint the prophet that's going to follow him and take the reins after him, a, guy, a kid named Elisha complicated Elijah with a J Elisha with an SH he anoints his replacement not because Elijah is done in fact they're going to work together for a long time but he's setting the stage for the folks who will come after him God is at work in the audacious but he's also at work in things behind the scenes that Elijah knows nothing about and Elijah needed to see it Elijah needed to see it. These three guys after him are going to take the next step in snuffing out the false Baal worship in their area. There's a part of the story of Elijah that we tend to miss whenever we read, whenever we read it for ourselves. And it's this truth right here. God didn't need Elijah. that? that? Like, what do we do with that? Is that even true? Did God need Elijah? Like, we tend to read Elijah's story, especially growing up in Sunday school. uh, Like, we tend to read Elijah's story as, Elijah did this great thing, and Elijah did that great thing. Why aren't we so glad that Elijah's on God's team? Is that the way we ought to read Elijah, though? Did God need Elijah to do the powerful thing? No, right? God was going to put an end to Ahab and to Jezebel and the false worship of Baal, whether Elijah was involved or not. Right? God didn't need Elijah to do it. So the question needs to be asked, why would God go to the trouble of using Elijah then? I mean, Elijah's ups are pretty good, but Elijah's downs are pretty low it, doesn't it save God some time and some frustration just to bypass it all together? Why does God use Elijah here? I means a lot of trouble for somebody you don't need. And here we get to answer our fourth question for the morning, right? How does Elijah's story preach God's gospel? And the answer, or at least the first answer, is the same exact way ours does. Same way ours does. You don't bring anything to the table either. God doesn't need you any more than he needed Elijah. You may not realize this yet, but you come to the relationship with all kinds of baggage. You think Elijah's is bad? You should see mine. And yet. And yet, dear church, God loves you. And he wants to make himself known to you. And through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he covers your sin and your shame and he draws near to you. He engages you and empowers you and emboldens you to do what God has called you to do. We're just like Elijah in this story. But listen, it ain't because Elijah was awesome. It's precisely because he's not. Elijah desperately needed God to be near and to do the big thing and you and I are the same. Elijah wasn't awesome but because he was a wreck and in desperate need for God to hold him together. So welcome to the club. But there's a second way that Elijah's story preaches the gospel is that the prophets were a placeholder for something better. The prophets were a placeholder for something better. They were a stopgap for a better day. And let me show you what I mean with Luke chapter 9. One last text. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Pick it up in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he, Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and who? Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 32, And Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men who were parting from him, Peter uh, said to Jesus, Master, it is it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents for you and the one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. Peter does this often. often. Verse 34. And he was saying the, or as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Who's talking? God the Father, right? 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen if you look at another version of the story it tells us that jesus told them not to say anything about it so we've got this weird picture here of elijah and moses shooting the breeze with jesus as they stand there and jesus is being revealed in his glorified state no big deal right probably not much of a scene Let's assume that God gets to decide who he wants to use. Like, like, we could talk about this and we can talk about that. Let's say that God gets to pick two people he wants to be a part of Jesus' transfiguration moment. Why Moses and Elijah? Because they personify more than anyone else the law and the prophets, right? Who did God use to give us the law? Who's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? both in person and in their writings, these are the guys that you point to as the law and the prophets. And their presence here lends all of their weight to affirming who Jesus is, doesn't it? This is the one we testified about. This is the one we pointed to. This is the one who empowered our ministries. Or we can say it this way, this is the one we put our hope in. This is the one that even Moses and Elijah, as awesome as they are, put their hope in. Elijah fought hard for the glory of God in his day, right? He called people to righteousness. He looked forward to the coming Messiah. And so here in Luke 9, we got this really weird but incredibly rare picture to see what would happen when the greatest prophet in Israel stands in front of the guy who he pointed to his entire ministry. I mean, we don't get that with Isaiah or Jeremiah, right? Those are really great prophets. But Elijah gets this really weird, rare opportunity to stand in front of the one he pointed to and said, that's the one we're aiming at. So what does he do when he has this gloriously rare opportunity? He fades into the background. You don't see a single other thing from them after this moment. Peter makes his little comment about setting up some tents so they can all hang out for a while. And then the father speaks over the whole thing and says, this is my son, listen to him. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are just gone. They're not there anymore. Because with Jesus standing there, they don't need Moses and Elijah anymore. They had the one Moses and Elijah spent all their time pointing to. He was standing in front of their face right now. Their job, as awesome as they were, their job was to point to Jesus and then get out of the way. That's exactly what they do here. The prophets were a placeholder for something better. Which means, church, we've answered our four questions for the morning and positioned ourselves for our big question, haven't we? There's one overarching theme to our series. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so today we learn that. God raised up Elijah to be a shadow of a more perfect Elijah to come in Jesus. See, unlike the prophets, Jesus would not simply serve as a mouthpiece for God. No, 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 that would not do. The word of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus wouldn't simply call people to righteousness and fight for God's glory. No, 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 he instead came as the perfect image bearer of the eternal king and purchased righteousness for us through his death on the cross. Forget about calling to, he's come to accomplish. Forget thus says the Lord. See, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. This is the story of God. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower, of Jesus, your response is to press into God by pressing into his word. Elijah's story is a roller coaster of emotions, if you haven't learned by now. But it's been given to us so that we may know him, right? That we may know God. And so go find him there. He can be found in the story of Elijah. But we can take another step into this. Maybe Elijah's story sounds a lot like yours, right? Maybe like Elijah, you can point to some big things that God has done, but you can point to way more moments where you've gone insular, and if you felt alone, and you felt isolated, and you felt like God wasn't even there. Am I wrong on that one? Hush, Elijah. Hush. It's funny that even in those moments where Elijah felt alone, God was still constantly sending the ravens to bring food. Still constantly bringing the water. Still providing the oil and the flour. Hush, Elijah, hush. God doesn't always work in the audacious. Sometimes he's working in the whisper that we're oblivious to. Today's a good day to repent and draw near to God. Follow Jesus, he's nearer than you often think. Press in. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, we'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you can respond to God's word today and you do that uh, by meeting the one, Jesus, that this story is all about. You do that by repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus alone for salvation. We don't know much about Elijah's life before the roller coaster, but we do know this. He put his trust in the Lord not in what was popular in the moment. The whole nation chased after a way that seemed right to them, but it was on a track that was eventually going to be judged by the true God. If only they had turned and repented of their sin, if only they had responded to Elijah's call. But the same call goes out to you you have the opportunity to repent of sin and come near to God. And so maybe today's the day that you're ready to do that. That you're ready to walk in the grace that he's offering. Today's a good day to repent and believe. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. You come talk to me about it if you want to. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who is patient with those who have really low valleys. even work powerfully through them at times. God, I can relate. There's things I get to point to and, and celebrate you doing, but there's also things that I'm, I don't see, and it's usually because I'm blinded by my own insufficiencies and my own frustrations and my own whatever's. But God, you're not only the God of the audacious, you are the God of the silent, low whisper. And you may at times be in the hurricane, you may at times be in the fire, And you may at times be in the earthquake, but you are the God of the whisper. Open my eyes to see. Open my ears to hear. Draw me close to you. God, would you save people today? Would you, would you show yourself to those who don't know you? Draw them to repentance and give them yourself. God, as we respond, as we sing, would you inhabit the praise of your people? Would you do a mighty work in us? Help us walk in, the obe- in obedience to what you're calling us to this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.